BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Among people who experience some sort of trauma, what percentage do you think go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder? A third? A half? More? Actually, the answer is 10%. An overestimation of how common it is to develop PTSD after trauma is one of the misconceptions my guest thinks are leading to its overdiagnosis and an underestimation of human resilience. Dr. Joel Paris is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and the author of Myths of Trauma, Why Adversity Does Not Necessarily Make Us Sick. Today on the show, Joel explains what some of those myths of trauma are, including the idea that it's trauma itself which causes PTSD. Joel argues that PTSD is instead created when exposure to trauma meets an individual's susceptibility to it. And he explains what psychological, biological, and even social factors contribute to this susceptibility. We also get into how the methods used to prevent the triggering of trauma can backfire and how the treatment for PTSD will be ineffective if it only focuses on processing an adverse experience. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash trauma. All right, Dr. Joel Paris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for asking me. So you are a psychiatrist who specializes in working with individuals with borderline personality disorder. You also do a lot of research on borderline personality disorder, but you recently published a book called The Myths of Trauma, where you take readers on a tour of the history and oft-overlooked research of post-traumatic stress disorder. So why did a researcher and clinician of BPD decide to write a book about PTSD? People think that BPD is caused by trauma, and that's that you must have had trauma, and that's the main reason that you have that disorder. And it's simply not true. It's an aggravating factor, and uh, it's one of the risk factors of, of several that lead to BPD. But people, have, some people have wanted to actually uh, redefine BPD as a post-traumatic disorder, and also since I do a less specialized practice consulting for colleagues about various cases, I find that both patients and doctors are all too ready to diagnose anyone with PTSD if they have something bad has happened to them in their lives. And this really doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It's an attempt to explain very simply something which is complex, interactive, and multidimensional. 
we'll we'll dig into these ideas more in our conversation, but your book's called The Myths of Trauma. You're not saying that trauma itself, this idea, is a myth, but there are myths around this idea. So what are the biggest ones? And maybe throughout the conversation, we can flesh this out some more. Okay. Well, definitely, I'm not dismissing trauma. It is important. About 25, 30% of the borderline patients that I see have histories like this, but a lot of them don't. And so the problems are, are many. First of all, the way the trauma is defined in DSM is too broad. And then there's a big discrepancy between exposure to trauma, which is almost universal, somewhere between 75 and 90%, versus the frequency of PTSD after exposure to trauma, which is like 10%. So 90% of people who are exposed to a traumatic event don't develop PTSD. And PTSD is most clear in a more narrow definition, such as a threat of violence or threat to your life or threat of rape. These are the things which are more likely to cause PTSD. But when people say, well, I was emotionally abused in my family, I mean, that's a real thing. But it's not the same thing as the other types of trauma in PTSD. So I think too broad a definition of the traumatic event and a gap between exposure to trauma and actually developing post-traumatic symptoms are some main myths that I discuss in my book. Well, let's talk about this definition of trauma. So you said it's broad. It's, it's, you're, you're arguing that it's too broad. How is it defined clinically, and how has that definition changed over the past few decades? PTSD got into the diagnostic manual in 1980 with the dsm 3 and that was the first time it appeared. And at that time, it had a narrower definition, and it got broader over subsequent editions. For example, it's mentioned that sometimes just hearing about trauma from somebody else without being directly exposed to it or witnessing it or indirect exposure in the course of your job, that these things could be causes of PTSD makes less sense than as a direct threat against yourself. And I think this is where the beginning of the trouble begins. Well, why did they make it more broad? Okay, so originally it was if you experienced violence, rape, et cetera, that was considered trauma. It's gotten broader and broader. Like, why? Why would they do that? What's the reasoning behind it? There's something called concept creep, which a psychologist described a few years ago. When you have a concept in psychology or a construct or a diagnosis, it tends to be increasingly used with time. Now, then the separate question is why do the writers of the manual agree to expand it? Well, they've expanded many of their diagnoses. This is not the only example. That's a whole other talk in itself you know, about the problems with DSM. There may be clinical reasons in that therapists like to make this diagnosis. And there may also be political reasons because people have talked about whether we live in a kind of a post-traumatic society or a, tra- or a traumatic narrative and that people talk about their traumas. And, and these days I'm hearing from patients, they use this language, you know, even if they haven't read the manual. It's out there and it, it's popular because I think people would rather be victims of something else then feel this is something inside them which made them more vulnerable to trauma. And one of the main points of my book 
is that PTSD is not only a result of the exposure, but reflects a vulnerability, a susceptibility to trauma, of which there are many, many causes. Okay, so one of the arguments you make, one of the myths of trauma is that we've broadened the definition too much, possibly, to make it a useful idea. And this idea of concept creep, we've actually had, it was uh, Nick Haslam. That's, that's, that's who I was quoting. Yes. Yeah, we had him on the podcast. That's oh, episode good. number 788, for those who want to listen to that. I will look that up. But you also, <laughs> so you mentioned one of the other myths of trauma, I think it's kind of been embedded in our, our popular culture, psyche, consciousness, whatever you want to call it, is that if someone experiences a traumatic event, I think the assumption is, well, that person's going to have some sort of PTSD. It's going to harm them. But you highlighted numbers. Like, actually, it's, it's very, very few people who actually experience a traumatic event go on. So what were those numbers again? Well, in general, about 10% of people who are exposed directly to trauma will develop PTSD later on. And the numbers are somewhat higher for certain things, like rape is the worst one. And that gives you a, a, a 20% level, although that still means that 80% of people after rape don't develop PTSD. And why do you think this gets overlooked? So I think people just, yeah, automatically assume if someone experiences a really severe hardship, they're going to have some kind of problem. They need to go get, get professional help. But you're showing the numbers actually, I mean, 10%. I mean, it's terrible for the people who do experience it, but it's most people, they're going to be okay, it sounds like. Well, yes, this is called resilience. It's a very central concept in psychology and psychiatry. And resilience is the rule after trauma. And I always say if we weren't resilient, we would have gone extinct 100,000 years ago. I mean, life was much more traumatic in the past than it is today, in fact. I would refer your listeners to Steven Pinker on that subject. And so... I think from an evolutionary point of view, we need to be resilient. So I think one of the arguments you make in the book is that this sort of tight coupling between trauma and PTSD that we have in our, not only amongst the public, but also amongst a lot of clinicians, that it might be increasing the diagnoses of PTSD because someone thinks, well, this person had a traumatic event, they automatically have PTSD. And you're saying, maybe not. Well, I see this all the time because I get because I'm evaluating patients. I do hundreds of consultations a year, so I have a lot of experience with this. And if there's almost anything of this sort in the patient's past, even just an adverse situation like a dysfunctional family, people write in, PT after the first diagnosis, they, st they stick in PTSD as the second diagnosis. And some people, and this goes into the latter part of my book where I talk about treatment, some people will prescribe various kinds of what are called trauma-focused therapies, even in people who haven't had the kind of trauma which is most likely to produce PTSD. And, and this is a, an issue I've heard other clinicians raise concerns about, this idea of diagnosing people who probably shouldn't receive a diagnosis, because what it does, it people begin to take that identity as well. The shrinks that I had PTSD, so I must have PTSD. And they start thinking, well, I have PTSD. But then if they would have gone to another psychiatrist, they probably wouldn't have gotten that diagnosis and they wouldn't have been thinking themselves as someone with PTSD. Probably not if they've seen, probably less likely if they see somebody like me. It doesn't even need a shrink to convince people that they have PTSD. People are self-diagnosing all the time 
And then they talk about, oh, that's my PTSD acting up, or that's my ADHD acting up. And all these diagnoses, which are sort of fuzzy and uncertain, become a part of your identity. Like you said, it's a very important point. Well, so, okay. So most people don't get PTSD. Let's say someone comes to you saying, well, I've got, I think I got PTSD. How do you, like as a clinician, how are you defining PTSD? If you look at a patient like, yeah, you've got something here, we need to help you out. What's that look like for you? Well, I, I'm following the DSM criteria because the most precise. If you look look at it, it's basically exposure to trauma followed by certain characteristic symptoms, most particularly flashbacks, avoiding things that remind you of what happened to you, the so-called triggers, you know, a, a kind of state of uh, of expecting bad things to happen. I mean, there are all kinds of symptoms which are listed in the manual which are required for the diagnosis above and beyond the exposure and people who have ptsd will probably have them and people who don't will probably not so the research shows that most people who experience a traumatic event they're likely not going to have ptsd about 10 percent, 20 percent in cases of rape so it sounds like if trauma itself doesn't cause ptsd if that's well, that, the case that's, that's my whole point yeah okay trauma the trauma itself doesn't cause PTSD, but you say there are other factors that can contribute to it. So what are those other factors? Well, first of all, it was noted many years ago, there was a study of Australian firefighters. They were fighting bushfires, which is pretty dangerous work. And the nice thing about this study and other similar studies have been conducted since then, but this was the first study. What they did was they measured some of their personality traits when they started working as firefighters, before anything had actually happened to them or before they'd been in a fire. And they found that people who have what is called very high trait neuroticism were more likely to develop PTSD after something bad happened in firefighting. So trait neuroticism basically is a central concept in personality theory which describes how easily you get upset and how hard it is to calm down and it could be called being thin-skinned or extremely sensitive. So people who had more of this were more likely to develop PTSD after exposure. And they've done studies like this with policemen and uh, health workers and all kinds of people exposed to trauma. So, so personality is certainly one of them. And I should point out here also that trait neuroticism is partially heritable, like all personality traits. There's about half of it, which is you're born with, and the other half is due to your life experience. So it's it's a little little bit more complex than that. But it has to do with things about you and how you respond to stressful events and not just the trauma itself. Okay, so it sounds like some people are just more susceptible. So if they experience a traumatic event and if they're high on this neuroticism, which, as you said, part of it is just genetic, like just that's the luck of the, the draw for you, right. you're more likely to possibly experience PTSD after that traumatic event. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else besides the, the inherent, like the, the personality, any other factors that contribute to a diagnosis or more people being well, susceptible? What I, well, what I propose in the book is what's called a biopsychosocial theory, which has been for many decades a rather influential concept. And it's not just for PTSD, it's for everything in psychiatry. So that, you know, 
let me take take a step back and say it's easier for people to think that A causes B, and that there's one cause and there's one effect. And and the world isn't like that. The world is multivariate. Uh, everything is interactional. Everything that happens to you is complicated. Every response you have to what happens to you in life is equally complicated. And so we, when we say biopsychosocial, we're talking about hereditary propensity. And I'll give you another example of the hereditary propensity while I'm at it. There was a study of Vietnam vets, and there were quite a lot of studies of Vietnam vets, but this one was a twin study of Vietnam vets where they were able to, to measure the concordance of various mental disorders, including PTSD. And they found for every feature of PTSD, there was a fairly strong heritable component which influenced whether you would get it. So, the, so what you're born with is really quite important. Some people are just born very nervous, and it's not always a bad thing because cautious people sometimes live longer than risk-takers, but it's still something to be... Then there's a psychological aspect of it, and this relates to other aspects of neuroticism and other personality traits, and also your life experience. So people who've had previous mental disorders, particularly those related to anxiety and depression, prior to uh, PTSD are more likely to, to end up with PTSD. So, Or even if there's just a family history. We saw that in the Australian study that even though it's just a family history, they're more likely to develop PTSD. So there are all these psychological factors which affect, which increase the risk. And then social factors, well, I do talk about this in the book, which is I think that the culture of PTSD is part of a larger issue in which people are using psychiatry to validate their sense of victimization in life. And people are writing memoirs about this, and some of them are bestsellers, and sometimes you see this on television. So there's a whole social structure around it saying it's not only okay to have PTSD, in a way it's kind of like almost you should have it because it's a tough world out there, and we need to change the world. So this, some people believe. So, But the point about the biopsychosocial model is it's an interactive model. So it, it, one hit won't give you a mental illness usually. It takes two hits, three hits, maybe more, and they all sort of add up and have a cumulative effect and affect each other. So that's the model I'm proposing. And it leads to a different kind of treatment because uh, I'm sure we'll get to this. I don't think that spending all the time discussing the traumatic event itself is always the best idea. Okay, so with this biopsychosocial model, it's complex, it's nonlinear. I think a lot right. of people, I think particularly the public, you know, and just the lay lay individuals, they think, well, if X happened, then Y happened. They're very linear thinking. And you're, well, it made that way to think yeah, linear. Yeah. So I want to talk more about this the social aspects. So we talked about the the sort of the biopsycho part of this model. Some people are just born with a propensity to develop mental illnesses, including PTSD, if they experience uh, severe adversity in their life. There's this social model, you call it like the culture of PTSD. You also talk about the culture of trauma. Have there been studies done? I, I think you particularly see this in the West, in America especially. Mm-hmm. Have there been studies done across cultures where they look at, say, a, a country in Africa or China, or for example, where maybe this idea of trauma and PTSD isn't in the, the popular psyche do they have about the same amount of PTSD diagnoses compared to the United States? Well, 
there are very few systematic or large-scale studies of this kind. I mean, it's expensive and difficult to find out the prevalence of mental disorders in Africa or other developing countries. Nevertheless, I think somewhat partly anecdotally, but also based on some of the things I've read from anthropologists and cultural psychiatrists, people in other cultures, they have to stress that it comes out differently. For example, fatigue. Uh, people just take to their bed and they have no energy. We used to call that in the 19th century psychiatry neurasthenia. So these kinds of symptoms tend to be more common in developing countries. And I don't know of anybody who's gone out to measure PTSD. I've been interested in, even in the question as to whether or not there is borderline personality disorder outside the West. And uh, what I seem to have concluded is that yes, in the large, in very large cities, but no, not in, in places which haven't changed in a thousand years. And there's something about the, I think there's something about the stresses of modern life, the pace of change. Maybe we could even put a little bit of blame on the internet and social media for spreading spreading all kinds of ideas of how to frame your your distress. I mean. The stress, psychological stress is universal, but how it comes out is not as universal. There's a historian of psychiatry named Edward Shorter, who I think would be interesting for your program. He, he describes something called the symptom pool, and he, he documented over the last couple of centuries how symptomatic presentations have changed, even in the West. And PTSD is probably an example of that, but I can't prove it with hard data. You cite some research, let's see, yeah, Duckers and Bruin, they noted a vulnerability paradox in that PTSD is much more common in highly developed countries than those afflicted by widespread poverty. And then McNally did a study, he said, he suggested that the paradox could be resolved if PTSD is more frequent in subpopulations within wealthier countries who are more vulnerable. So I guess the idea is that if you grow up in like a very affluent life and you don't have a lot of adversity, your standard of what is what is considered adversity is probably lower than those who grew up in really trying circumstances. I think that's very true. Thank you for the close reading of my book and those references because I did discuss them. You know, although they're not based on extensive data, I think those ideas make a lot of sense. Okay, yeah. So you, the thing you're saying again is like you're not saying that PTSD doesn't exist in these maybe like Africa or China or whatever. I'm sure it. I'm sure it does, but I, but I suspect at a lower, much lower, lower rate. rate. Or it might manifest itself differently than here in the United States. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, it, may, it may come out as something else which doesn't look like PTSD and maybe looks a little bit more like depression or anxiety. We're gonna take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. 
So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. 
Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Okay, so yeah, this biopsychosocial model shows how complex it is. There's a lot of factors going on. Just the way you think about PTSD might influence whether you have will be prone to get PTSD. If you think, well, if I have this traumatic experience, because like that's what everyone's saying, then if you experience a traumatic experience, you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to get PTSD. I need to go get help. Some other myths that you highlight in the book is this idea of repressed memories when it comes to PTSD. Yes. What's going on there? What's going on is, is a fad. Well, what I call a malignant fad within psychiatry. It's not the only one, but it was one of the worst. It was most prominent in the 1990s. And it was promoted by one psychiatrist who wrote in a book, the usual response to trauma is to, is to forget about it, which is totally untrue because the whole concept of PTSD is that you can't get it out of your mind. You can't put it behind you. And, and the treatment involves, often involves helping people to put it behind them and accept that that happened and then they have to move on. Now, but people are troubled by intense memories of, what, of bad things that happened to them. And that's a crucial element of PTSD. The idea that trauma is repressed, there's really almost no evidence for this at all. It was an idea introduced by Sigmund Freud uh, about 130 years ago, and it just has not, it has not been supported by research. But what the fad consisted of was hypnotizing people or putting them into very intensive therapies and telling them, you must have been traumatized because look at your symptoms. I mean, I had a patient with borderline personality disorder she told me of her experience at a, as a teenager in a pediatric hospital in Montreal. And she said, out with, with some venom, they try to convince me that my father must have molested me and are they wasting my time? So this idea that you, there was this book, The Courage to Heal, it sold millions of copies because it appealed to people and said, if you have these symptoms, you probably were traumatized as a child. And if you can't remember it, that proves that you were traumatized because you repressed it. It was completely wacko in this respect. And yet it appealed to, 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 to many people. It was only a minority of psychotherapists who embraced, or psychiatrists who ever embraced this idea. But it was out there in the public and there was a small number of people who were promoting it. And uh, I think you'll still see it. So, the, so these ideas of something terrible happened to me, I just have to work to remember it and, and then process it. This is a very appealing idea for many people. And you also, I mean, you highlight, so you're saying this idea that you, you'll, if you experience a traumatic event, you're likely to repress it. I mean, you, you, look, you go back to the historical record showing you know, Civil War soldiers who they didn't they weren't diagnosed with PTSD but they basically in their journal entries and their letters they're obviously they were traumatized and the, their problem was they couldn't forget it like they wanted to get it out of their head but they they're, exactly. they're having exactly. flashbacks and by the way the soldiers in war also a majority of them never never develop PTSD but there's another thing which is particularly relevant for the USA which is that the veterans administration offers you free treatments of all kinds if you say you have PTSD and um, or if somebody tells you you have PTSD, it's an entry 
into treatments, which tend to be not so easily available otherwise. So let's talk about this, this idea, you mentioned trigger warnings. You, also, you often hear that, like I experienced something that triggered my PTSD. Right. There might be something to do that. You hear about, you know, people, soldiers particularly, who they might hear some sort of loud noise and it might remind them of... There, there is, it is definitely a, a real phenomenon. But then you say there's some myths around this idea of trigger warnings that have creeped in into our how we talk about this stuff. Well, if you hear a loud noise or even a low-flight bird or something like that and you want to duck, that's, that's a good example of a trigger that can bring back certain traumatic events. I don't disagree with that at all. But, you know, then it starts becoming like I was rejected by my partner and that triggered me because, because of my unhappy childhood. I mean, it starts to spread and Haslam's concept creep into something which becomes all the, the, the pathways to psychopathology can be, can be seen in this model. And it's very tempting. Yeah, and it becomes so broad that it, like it, the idea of triggers becomes useless. Almost. It's certainly overrated. Yeah. And I think that you've highlighted research too, this idea, you're seeing this in college classrooms, this idea of trigger warnings. We're going to discuss something that's potentially, you know, if you experience this, it might trigger you. So if you want to get out, that's fine. And then you highlight research in the book showing that those actually, they don't do anything. Like in- no, no, well, well, in fact, this is the whole problem of the whole culture in the university and the trigger warnings. And I went to a lecture at my university from an expert in a, in a rather controversial field, which is gender identity. And at the beginning of the, and while, while he was being introduced, the uh, moderator announced that if you get too upset by anything this person says, we have people in the back ready to talk to you. I mean, you know, I think uh, Jonathan Haidt and others, uh, Christakis, people, academics have talked about this as something which is really undermining free speech in university because somebody's going to be triggered by it. And it's kind of like a weird idea that young people could be so easily triggered that they they have to be, in the words of these of these academics, coddled rather than be in an environment where you can pose difficult questions and look for answers. Yeah, you highlight research from Bellet. He has had this to say, I thought it was really interesting. He says, uh, Trigger warnings may raise awareness of the difficulties of people suffering PTSD. However, they may also create the impression that the experience of trauma always renders survivors emotionally incapacitated. And we talked about this. In reality, most trauma survivors are resilient and show few symptoms of PTSD after an initial period of adjustment. The perception of trauma survivors as dysregulated victims may contribute to negative stigma concerning the very individuals trigger warnings are intended to protect. And it works somewhat against the idea of competence, mastery, you know, getting a life, you know, having an identity, feeling realistically optimistic about one's options, all these things, it's infantilized. Yeah. So we talked about what can cause people to get PTSD and some of the myths around that. Uh, But again, you highlight research, most people aren't affected about 90 to 80%. If they experience a traumatic event, they're, they're going to be okay. But then you also highlight research that some people actually become more emotionally and mentally robust after a traumatic event. What's going on there? That's called post-traumatic growth. 
and people like to quote Nietzsche who said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Uh, but in terms of science, there's a lot of research on resilience and, and people who've been through, been through terrible things, you know, most of them will, will cope. There's, there's a whole enormous literature in psychology about resilience and it's probably related to what's been called positive psychology. Whereas I think this trauma focus could be called negative psychology. On this idea of post-traumatic growth syndrome, are there some people who just have more of a propensity for that than others? Well, again, the highly neurotic people by nature are probably going to have more difficulty getting out of their traumas than people who, who could just... So there are some people who just... Bad things happen to them and they just shake them off and move on. They're very low in neuroticism. So I think, I think this is a very important factor in terms of how much people either get better without treatment and how much better they will get within treatment. And this idea that, okay, some people will experience growth, some people will have a hard time after they experience traumatic events. Uh, this reminds me of a podcast we did a couple of years ago about children. And there's this idea that some children are born orchids and some are born dandelions. I love that. Like the dan- I love that. Yeah. Yeah, the dandelion kids, like you can put them in any situation and they'll be okay because like they're like they're like weeds or they're like dandelions, they're robust. But then some kids, because of genetics and whatever, they're more like orchids and they require a more uh, a better environment. They can't handle a lot of stress. And I think it's a, a interesting thing to keep in mind as you're thinking about this stuff. Well, Jay Belsky has written about this too. He's a well-known psychologist, and he. He just calls a differential sensitivity to the environment. And he suggests that actually these people who are easily upset are also more permeable to good things that happen to them. So they may actually do better than, than the average person if they're in a very positive environment, but they do much worse if they're in a negative one. So let's talk about treatment. What are some of the biggest myths about the treatment of PTSD and other trauma-related disorders? Well, I think the biggest one is that is that the treatment is, should only be about processing the trauma, and this is the problem with with several of the methods that I describe in my book. I'm somewhat negative about EMDR, this eye movement thing, where if, if you have ever seen a video of this being done, that it reminds me of Mesmer from the 18th century with a wand, you know, waving, you know, you know, and then the eye movements which has not been shown to make any difference. EMDR is no better than most standard therapies which are being offered to these patients. But it's trendy. It was marketed very cleverly by this woman, Shapiro, who developed it. And some people come in asking, asking for it. And so, but in fact, I think we can live without it. There are variations of cognitive behavior therapy which have a kind of a traumatic focus which i think make more sense you do have to talk about the trauma i'm not suggesting in any way we should avoid talking about it and i mean it's always worth going into it the question is whether or not healing happens because you've processed the trauma or whether healing happens because something larger you know like your sense of of self, identity, direction, your relationship, your career. You've got things to protect you and guide you through recovery, which can be 
supported and reinforced in psychotherapy. And I think those broader aspects of therapy, which have sometimes been called the common factors in therapy, the ones that make you feel that somebody's understood you and you can get better and you don't have to give in, give in to all of these things. This is what works, I think, for most people in therapy. And I think not seeing that broader picture may be a negative in terms of what we offer patients who do have PTSD. Okay, so what you're saying is, the bottom line, therapy for PTSD, as long as you're with a therapist who you feel like you're understood, you have a good relationship with them, they give you a sense of hope that you can you know, get over this and move on with your life and be robust, that's probably the more important thing compared to like the specific therapy you use. The research totally supports that. There's a guy in Wisconsin called Bruce Wampold who's been writing about this for decades. And uh, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that techniques in therapy are much less important than the relationship. And that the ability to get people better is as much a talent, a personal talent of the person who provides the treatment as it is anything you know, nuts and bolts specific that they do. And I think this could apply to other mental health things that you might, you know, if you want to. It's, it's, generally, it's generally true in, in all the non-psychotic mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, personality disorders. I mean, I mean, we certainly do a bit of trauma work when we treat our patients with borderline personality disorder in the clinics that I run. But it's part of a larger frame, and we're very influenced by Marshall Linehan's DBT which emphasizes something called a radical acceptance, which goes back to the Stoics and philosophy in some ways. And, and that you encourage people to say, whatever's happened to you in the past, it's in the past. The future is in your hands. You can make it better. I'll coach you to, to get there. But you don't have to be hobbled by the past. But, you, but before you, but, but in order to do that, you have to accept that it's happened and you can't change it. And but not see that yourself is doomed to, to be marked by it for the rest of your life. So this is a, this crucial concept in dialectical behavior therapy of radical acceptance. We use it a lot, and I think it's just as relevant to trauma as some of the other more trauma-specific things that have been described. And yeah, you know, one of the arguments you make, and this is bolstered by other researchers you cite, is that the focusing on treatment, where you just talk about the trauma over and over again. It's not helpful and actually can backfire because it just ingrains in the person's head that, well, I can't do anything about this. This happened to me and there's no hope. And I just kind of have to muddle along through life. They had these trauma counselors who were some, at one point were being flown into various disasters to talk to people right away. And they found that that definitely made people worse because they, had, they haven't even gotten past the stage of being so-called shock yet. And uh, I think you have to respect trauma, validate the person's right to be upset about it, but not indicate that somehow by going over and over the same thing, they can get better without doing something in their present life to make a difference. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the studies about the uh, the trauma counselors, I remember hearing about that 10, 15 years ago when there would yes. be a natural disaster or even at 9-11, they would fly in these trauma counselors so they could just talk to these people right away. And I, I think it was well intended. They thought, well, you know, these people had a hard time. If we just talk to them right away, maybe you can diminish the amount yeah. of uh, 
PTSD they might experience, but it actually backfired. Because like, I guess the body or in the mind, they have, we have a natural way of sort of processing, you know, traumatic events. And uh, if we, I don't know, talk about it too much, it might uh, disrupt that natural process. I totally agree with you. Yeah. And I think you still see it nowadays. I mean, I've seen it at schools where, you know, a teacher might die and they'll have okay. like grief counselors, like right away. And it reminded me of like the trauma counselors. And I don't, I, maybe it's helpful. Maybe some students need that, but I mean, maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's just, kids just need to kind of get together and talk about it on their own. And they'll, I mean, maybe they'll, they'll figure it out. Absolutely. And I think, yeah. And, and of course, that also relates to the situation of trigger warnings in, in university classrooms is the same issue. They go to the council, they hear something which is upsetting. You have to learn about things which are upsetting. That's part of education. Okay. So you, when you treat someone with you know, borderline personality disorder or PTSD, you're going to talk about the, the trauma. The, people need to feel like they're heard and understood. But I think I guess you're saying the better thing to do instead of focusing on that, continuing to focus on that, is to talk about what are some things I can do now to make things better, take them, like restore agency in people's lives. Agency is a, is a lovely word, and I totally agree with what you've just said. That's, 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 that's my position. Okay. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. Is there any place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, I am on the Author Center at Amazon. <laughs> I've written 25 books, mostly on personality disorders, but also on psychiatry in general. Uh, this one is published by Oxford University Press. It came out in October. It's in a paperback. It's not that expensive. So if people want to look for it, I think Amazon is the easiest place to go. Fantastic. Well, Joel Paris, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Dr. Joel Paris. He's the author of the book, The Myths of Trauma. It's available on amazon.com. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash mythsoftrauma, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you to not listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? 
It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a Remax agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. Remax is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.